0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing for October 14th, 2021. We are grateful to live and work in Alberta, a province on the traditional and ancestral territory of 48 different First Nations and the unceded homeland of the Métis Nation. Today's conversation is being shared in ASL. To ensure access to completely accurate information, closed captioning will be uploaded after the live stream is complete. This conversation for the public is being shared live on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. The Protect Our Province COVID-19 Briefing is a regular panel of doctors and experts. We will endeavor to bring timely, accurate updates on the COVID-19 crisis in Alberta and take questions from the media. The views of our panelists are their own and do not represent any institutions they may be affiliated with. We have collectively gathered here as concerned Albertans, attempting to ensure that everyone in the province has access to as much information concerning COVID-19 in Alberta as possible. As always, we will start things off with a brief update on the COVID-19 situation in Alberta. Thank you everyone for joining us once again. It is my pleasure to bring Dr. Vipond into the conversation to give us an update on the COVID-19 situation in Alberta. Dr. Vipond?
1: Hey Alberta, good to see you again. Um, I don't have any slides today, I'm just sneaking this in between patients at work. Um, so we're just gonna give you some numbers. Uh, today, The uh, or yesterday I guess, the um, reported numbers are 944. Last week it was 1243, that's a 24% drop. Seven-day is 12, seven day uh, average is 890, which is a 30% drop from 1270 last week. Um, so really, we're seeing some nice drops in the cases. I'm going to do some of this live. So I'm just going to put the laboratory testing now. And we have labs of or a percent positivity of 7.47. That's the lowest so far since the peak. And a week ago, it was uh, 8.24. So dropping about a percent. Um, and, and so we've had some pretty good drops in both of those, and that means everything's consistent, everything's going in the right direction. Some people have asked me why. Why are things going so well? Um, you know, I've been an advocate for, for closing um, classes, and I still think the, the kid numbers are way too high, especially in that 5 to 11 zone. But I think it's obvious that uh, we're now a good two weeks following – Probably about four weeks now, following the introduction of the vaccine passport, not ever to be called a vaccine passport, as well as um, a new mask mandate for the province, and I, I have to attribute, to, you know, those as being the predominant things that are making a difference. Um, going on to hospitalizations, um, the best number we have for inpatients is Monday. I suspect that uh, it's probably the most accurate. It's eight twenty-four. And just to put it in perspective, two weeks ago, a little bit more than two weeks ago on the 27th of September, it was 872. That was the peak. So we've had a 5.5% drop in inpatients from the peak. So slowly going down. That's a pretty slow drop, 5.5% over two and two weeks and a bit. Um, ICU uh, peaked out the, the day after on the 28th of September at 268. It's now 231. And sorry, I'm just going to bring that up. Um, and that's a drop of... Uh, five over the last 24 hours. Um, And so overall we've had a 13.8% drop since the peak. One of the things I noticed yesterday is that our our case hospitalization rate, that's how what percent of all of our cases get hospitalized has been creeping up. What's reported online is the total for the entire pandemic. So the number of cases for the entire pandemic and take the hospitalizations and you get a percentage. And right now it's at 4.4. If my recollection is correct, we were at four at the end of the third wave, and we've been creeping up through this fourth wave up to 4.4%. Now, because this is for the whole pandemic, our case hospitalization rate for this fourth wave would be substantially higher than 4.4%, probably edging towards 5%. I can't give you the number cause I can't work the stats, but if any statisticians out there want to give me that number, I think that would be a very useful number to see how much worse the Delta wave is compared to other waves. We know ICU has been creeping up as well. It was 0.7% at the end of the third wave, now 0.8. Um, and that's been steady for a while. I'm going on to, um, severe outcomes, uh, 30 deaths. So that means 68 deaths reported in the last 48 hours. Um, and uh, we have no young people who passed away today. Um, so that's, I guess, goodish news, but still 30 people that would have continued to to live had they been living in another province, such as Halifax, uh, Nova Scotia. Um, just commenting on two days ago, the announcement that there was a 14 year old that passed away that's now been removed from the roster. Um, and uh, Dr. Hinshaw apologized, saying that the death uh, likely was not attributed to the COVID. Um, and uh, I just want to reiterate the fact that um, we should probably not be reporting comorbidities at all. People are just dying or not dying. The comorbidities, I think, is an attempt to make people feel better, um, but there's a lot of people without comorbidities that are dying, and there are people like me that have a comorbidity that would be reported as dying should should we pass away, and, and uh, even though I have a comorbidity, I don't think it makes it any, any worse should I pass away. That's a little selfish, of course, but... Um, the other thing I want to point out uh, for pediatrics, I try to keep an eye on that. So we had two new hospitalizations in the five to nine age group in the last 24 hours. And one of those is in the ICU. So we have another pediatric um, ICU critical care patient. Finally, the last things I always like to talk about is the demographics. I'm just going to pull that up. It takes me a sec. So we're going to go on the stats website, the characteristics and look at the kids Um, They're still by far the highest, I would say almost twice the rate of any other age group. Um, All the age groups are dropping substantially. um, And that's really good to see. And I'm hoping that the mask mandate uh, in schools is is something to do with that and that we continue that on through the duration of the school year. Um, And the last thing to look at is Robson Fletcher's uh, stats on health regions. I'm just pulling that up and um yeah going down everywhere um and even in the central and north area they're still almost three times the rate of the urban areas but uh, they are dropping um substantially over the last since the 1st of october was one of those picked out so we're going the right direction and i want to turn this over to the to the panel i am so um i don't want to say, say excited but i'm i'm so glad that we're doing this uh, panel today because this wave, um, you know, as a medical doctor, I just want to recognize that this wave is as much a political crisis as it is a health crisis. And um, the the choices that our leaders have made have led directly to the situation that we're in. And so I'm really glad that we're going to take a moment to uh, to parse that out to figure out because we want to avoid this. We want to avoid this we want to avoid a wave five, a wave six, future pandemics. If we don't figure this out, um, we're destined to repeat our mistakes. So back to you, Michelle.
0: Dr. Vipond may not be willing to say that he's excited, but I am willing to say that I am very excited because I know that I am going to learn a lot of things today. And I know that I am going to learn them in a moment in our history that is exceptionally timing timely. Um, today, we are going to be exploring the ongoing impacts of COVID-19 in Alberta and the politics, governance, and public health measures, rules, um, all of that sort of stuff, legalities that go with it. And we have an unbelievable group of experts with us today. Um, first, I will bring into the conversation a regular POP contributor, um, Dr. Hardcastle, who I suspect many of you will recognize. Um, she is an associate professor of law and health policy and has joined us at this session to discuss how the government's convoluted legal strategy and lack of transparency have adversely affected compliance with public health, sh- health measures and their enforcement, something that I know a lot of folks at home comment on on a daily basis when you walk some where, where folks should be masked and they're not. And all of those pieces that have led to so much division, a lot of them seem to have really come from these policies. Um, a first time welcome to our stream, but long time Pop AB contributor, Ubaka. Agbogu. Um, Edmontonians hopefully will recognize him as a regular speaker from the August rallies. Um, as a human not located in Edmonton, I am thrilled to have this digital opportunity to meet you. Um, an associate professor and the CATS Research Fellow in Health Law and Science Policy at the University of Alberta. He has joined us to discuss the ongoing confusion between law and politics as it applies to how the government has been handling or mishandling, as the case unfortunately often seems to be, the pandemic. Also with us for the first time today, we have... Lindsay Tedz. Hello, Lindsay. Thank you very much for joining us. An associate professor of economics. Um, Her primary research fields are in fiscal and economic policy with an eye on inclusive public policy design and implementation. And contributing to our conversation today, whose camera's not currently on, but I bet they'll turn it on as soon as I bring them up. We'll see what happens. Oh, there we go, is (laughs) Melanie Thomas, an associate professor of political science at the University of Calgary. Her research focuses on gender and politics. Canadian In politics and political behavior. Um, Her contributions will focus on how voters evaluate incumbents with respect to accountability, something that I suspect, at least I really, really hope every single household will be doing this weekend with our municipal and county elections coming up on Monday. Um, especially if folks didn't early vote. I hope that a lot of this weekend will involve a lot of those conversations for people at home. Um, I brought everybody up so folks at home could see who was with us, hear what their expertise is. Let us know if you have any questions. I'm going to pull back myself and a couple of our panelists and leave a couple folks up to begin our conversation.
2: Great. So, so I think I'll I'll kick things off. Um, what I wanted to do today was to highlight four different issues that I think have contributed to the inefficacy of the public health measures to date, and that I hope that the government thinks about going forward as they uh, continue to have the vaccine passport, not a vaccine passport system in place, and and then once we get to the point. That uh, they're thinking about maybe pulling back on some of the current rules. so these these four issues, which are which are big issues, are all, I believe, contributing to the inefficacy of, of public health measures. The first is that we have uh, unduly complex laws, and we have had them throughout the pandemic. Um, I think that these unduly complex laws are, are largely a product of the government trying to navigate between lives and livelihoods, trying to deal with public health issues while still appeasing their their voting base and, and dissenting members of caucus. And so for example, with the vaccine passport system, we have one rule for businesses that are in, another rule for businesses that are out. We have exceptions, there are exemption orders that have been granted. And all of this was done really on the fly. There was an announcement and it all came into place mere days later. Um, These laws are difficult for people to understand. They're difficult to enforce. And both of those things tend to undermine their efficacy. The second issue that that I think is contributing to the problem with our current laws are unclear lines of accountability. I don't wanna say a lot on this because uh, Ibaka is gonna pick up on this, but the issue is really who is in charge. We hear from Henshaw, Dr. Henshaw, that she's an advisor, but then we have public health orders that bear her signature and cite her authority. And then we have the government who um, sometimes is, appears to be the decision maker. Um, but then other times when it's, it's convenient, seems more than happy to hide behind Dr. Hinshaw and, and to allow her authority to give a sometimes unwarranted legitimacy to their, to their public health policies. The third issue that I think is contributing to ineffective public health policy in this province is a lack of transparency. Um, Transparency is, is of course, an end in and of itself. We expect our governments to be transparent. That's part of how they get the legitimacy to govern. Uh, But I think particularly given that trust has been eroded in this government, uh, for example, their dialing back of of public health measures in July, and the problematic evidence on which that was based. Um, There's a real transparency crisis, and that that lack of transparency has undermined public trust in in politicians, public trust in public health officials, and that lack of public trust, I believe, contributes to, to issues with compliance. If you don't trust the people making the rules and you don't trust the evidentiary basis for their rules, why would you comply with those rules? The fourth thing that I think is undermining our current public health rules is um, is this ineffective facilitation of, of personal choice. And, and that really links back to, to, to some of the other issues. And what I mean there is, is we hear these rules um, which are a mix of, of lives and livelihoods and trying to leave the, the economy open, but protect public health. And lost in all of that is um, what does the science say? And I, I think that when we have a chief medical officer of health, who largely is a, is a figurehead for the government's public health policies, which represent that compromise, between lives and livelihoods, but we're not hearing from anyone what the science says. Um, And this this is an issue that's been identified post SARS in a number of different contexts that the public needs that information. I think that takes away the ability for people to make choices on their own. For example, if I'm immunocompromised, And and I'm hearing Dr. Hinshaw say, well, these are the rules that are in place, and she's implying her endorsement for them. I I might not be adequately protecting myself. The science may suggest that I should be implementing a a higher level of personal protection. And and I think that that's undermining the the public health rules for for those who who may be affected in that way and, and exercising that personal choice around those rules. So those are, are my my four big beefs with the current rules and the four things that uh, that I'd like to see addressed. Um, I'll, so I'll turn it over over to you, Bracca, to pick up on that.
3: Awesome. Uh, thanks, Dr. Hatcastle. I'm going to call you that. You're I-
2: also a doctor. <laughs> I, I, I should have been more
3: fancy.
0: Uh, so I am going, going to up- change his name now. He is going to become a doctor ahead, on the stream Thank as well.
3: You, <laughs> so uh, I'm going to pick up on... Uh, the, the question you posed about who's in charge, uh, but also ask who should be in charge. So I'll move from who's in charge to who should be in charge, and then connect it back to Joe's point about how do we avoid this uh, in the future if this were, were to come up again. So, so the, answering the question who's in charge uh, requires us to think about the tension that we've noticed throughout this pandemic between law and politics. Uh, on the one hand, there are people like us who say, that the law is very clear about who should be in charge or who is in charge. Uh, And the law, the public health act in this case, says that it's the chief medical officer of health who should make decisions, independent decisions. That doesn't mean that she does this without any help or without consultation with the government, but she really is the figurehead for managing uh, a disease outbreak and the person whose decisions should, as we've seen through the orders that she's issued, should be the one that, that, that prevails. But there are other people who say, well, how can that be? How can it be that in a democracy like ours, that one person, uh, even if that's what the statute says, is making decisions when our elected officials uh, are there? And these people sometimes argue that the elected officials have broader scope, they know a lot more things, they have more resources, so they should be making decisions. So how do we resolve that? I think it's important to understand the reason for the statute, for the legislation, and the reason for the rule, that gives the chief medical officer of health the the power to make independent decisions during a pandemic it is because a pandemic is an unusual state of affairs and if you reflect on the spirit of the public health act legislation what i think it means is that the chief medical officer of health represents the science and the medicine that we need to be able to make decisions at this point in time and so that should be what is predominant that is the first thing. In a pandemic, we want to get rid of the disease as much as po- as quickly as possible. And so the Chief Medical Officer of Health should be the figurehead and the person who's making these decisions. But the government is obligated through this legislation to provide support and listen to the Chief Medical Officer of Health lead through the way. So it's not supposed to be an antagonistic relationship, but one where the government supports the Chief Medical Officer of Health. And so it's clear to me, and it's clear to anyone who actually understands the law, that the politics and the law are not in conflict. Rather, they should be supportive of one another, but with the chief medical officer of health being the one who's saying to the government, this is what we need to do, because we need to get rid of this as quickly as possible, and I am somebody who understands the science, and so you should follow my lead. Now, if the government does not want that, if they think that's not the way to go, and we've seen that they've made numerous mistakes because they've clearly thought that this is not the way to go, and they've taken over when they don't know much about how to deal with this. But if they so desire, they have had multiple opportunities to change the law. That's all they need to do. They make laws all the time. They've enacted all kinds of laws. You know, they, in fact, they've been. I think they might be on on. Uh, they might have a world record for for enacting laws. So so they can not simply just say. Section 29 of the Public Health Act doesn't exist. The, you know Make it very clear so that the public is not confused. The CMOH is an advisor to us and we make the decisions. I think they haven't done this because they are trying to obscure accountability. As Dr. Harkas has said, they don't want people to know who's accountable. So they, they put Hinshaw forward when they want someone to take the blame for their bad decisions. Uh, and then when things go awry, uh, you know they claim that they don't know what's going on. When things are going well... They claim that they are the ones in charge. So I think this should change the life they want to do. So I think that would be a bad idea. So let me address the last thing the way to avoid this. The way to avoid this is not to move this authority to manage a pandemic into the political realm. You know, this is a recommendation that came from the SARS report, uh, you know, and it's something that we've seen from this pandemic the danger of politicizing that role. I think, in fact, what we need to do going forward is to strengthen the role of the CMOH. We have to make it a role that puts science in the lead and that puts our health first, uh, and that forces the government to actually support that role. So I'm thinking of the role of the Auditor General. I've talked about this you know, numerous times, a role that is stronger than it is now, not one uh, where we actually politicize the role further, because I don't think the politics has got us anywhere. So I'm gonna stop there.
0: Thank you very much. So if, what would be needed to make that happen, Doctor? Um, Like in terms of, is that, Mm, Is that a legal change that gets enacted in the legislature in order to create a system in which the Chief Medical Officer of Health does really function truly at that arm's length? And I guess sort of the follow-up on that, besides the mm, very egregious ways that both the chief medical officer of health and um, our elected officials have been manipulating the, that relationship in the eyes of the public to move blame. Currently with the way things are situated, who is actually legally responsible? Like who has the authority as opposed to them just sort of like, I don't know, playing a game of ping pong back and forth.
3: Right. I think after this, we, the first thing that needs to happen is the government needs to do an independent audit of their actions during this pandemic. I think that's absolutely important. And, you know, I don't trust this government to commit to a real audit, but that's what we need to have. And if Albertans want that, then they want to think carefully about what the next government should be and who the next government should be, because we need that audit. And from that audit, the lessons we we'll learn from that audit will inform how we design the role. We have to make sure that we insulate the things that will stop the numbers from rising, from from dying. We need to insulate that role from politics. But we need to be able to say in legislation, here are the resources that that person can call on, and here are the obligations that the government has towards supporting those resources. And if the government fails to do that, it becomes a very clear signal to everyone that they are actually breaking the law. And then we can have good evidence which wish to criticize them. And hold them to task.
0: Thank you. Um, I'm going to bring our other panelists back into the conversation now. Um, Lindsay and Melanie, um, do you guys have anything that you would like to offer on what Dr. Hardcastle and Dr. Ogbogo just
4: shared with us? Do you want to go first, Lindsay, or do you want me to do it? Okay. <laughs> um, so uh, I appreciate my colleagues being able to speak very clearly to where the legal boundaries are um, with respect to like a very precise bit of accountability. What I want to speak about is um, the things I'm observing with increasing alarm about how regular folks are talking about democratic account- accountability and specifically electoral accountability. and. A big part of what I'm gonna say is that what we're seeing is not normal. It's really not normal, what we're seeing. Um, The normal way or the way that our institutions were designed to work is that we uh, elect a set number of representatives. They represent geographical bits um, we represent geography more than we represent anything else in the Canadian system. We give them constitutionally five years, like in practice four years to be able to just kind of like try to run the show. And, you know, on the understanding that some co- things come up, sometimes things hit the fan. You do need a little bit of time to get your legs under you. Uh, and like, bad things happen that are beyond your control. But like we give people like a reasonable period of time to try to figure out like what they're going to do. And then we have another election again, on the understanding that if they do a good job, people will remember that. This is called like a retrospective and a prospective evaluation. So people will remember government performance, and they'll say, I'm going to hold you accountable for what you did. And I'm going to use your past performance to do a prospective evaluation of how well I think you're going to do in the future. Um, This is how it works, like in Canada and a whole bunch of other places. What this should mean is that when there is a crisis, when there is serious public pushback, when there is serious public aggravation and anger and disaster, and in this case, literally death, literally death, most, like, the normal order of operations is that a government would encounter this and they would scramble to mitigate these negative... um, Uh, negative evaluations or negative perceptions, or or like the negative things that they are doing, right? Um, What we're seeing in Alberta, like Jason Candy, Angus Reed just came out with the premier evaluations, which they report quarterly. Angus Reed is a reputable firm. Some people are going to want to say that they're biased, but from where I sit and how I see their data, they are are a good indicator of where things are at. Um, Jason Candy's at 22% approval. And that's like, people who really like him and people who only kind of like the job that he's doing. Like this is it's abysmal. It is so bad in any other context, a party in government facing this kind of public pushback, these kind of public numbers, this kind of frustration from the public would do a 180 and run in the other direction. So the question is I, I should say there's a there's a point that I want people to cling to and that it's like elections and electoral accountability work if you want to hold this government accountable, you need to use your election to do it. You need to use your vote to do it. This is the mechanism that we have. Voting is the main electoral accountability. And what I see is a lot of folks getting like super fatalistic about the idea that um, Albertans in general, the stereotypical Albertan is just never going to vote any particular kind of way. And I actually think that this must be what's driving a lot of the stuff that we see, which is this ideological assumption by some in the government, perhaps even the head of government, that if there is the right kind of Conservative Party present in Alberta politics, that Albertans would never, ever, 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 ever vote for anyone else. It is a profoundly disrespectful assumption to the public. It is a profoundly disrespectful assumption to voters and voters' intelligence and voters' preferences. And it is, frankly, undemocratic. It is undemocratic to assume that just because you happen to have the right kind of partisan flavor attached to, like, who you are, independent of, like, how competent you are at your job, in terms of, in this case, managing a public crisis, it is Like it is insulting to think that you actually don't actually have to listen to the public and like do better on this sorts of things. So to this, I would say, like, if people are kind of like, but where's the accountability? What can we do? You can vote. Uh, you could vote no in the equalization referendum for this reason on Monday, um, though there are other really good reasons to vote no in that sucker as well. Uh, I won't get into that. Um, but I also want to flag just very quickly because I know some folks are always going to be kind of like, but can't the lieutenant governor step in and do something and all these other sorts of things. And I got to say, like, there isn't a legal mechanism for them to do that. And from a democratic perspective, we really don't want this. It's really bad. What you want to do is double down on electoral accountability because electoral accountability is democratic accountability. And so in this case, I got to say, if there are people who are like still like uh, or like dedicated UCP partisans, you have another lever as well in addition to your vote. And this is your internal party um, levers of accountability because you've got democratic processes in there as well. And I got to say, based on how like deaf this government has been, I shouldn't use ableist language, my apologies, compared to like, that they're just not prepared to listen to regular members of the public. In which case I would say, I would go to the partisans and say, if, if you can put pressure on them to get them to actually be competent on the managing of this file for the sake of everybody else in this province, please do so. That's a democratic mechanism. People who aren't UCP partisans, you gotta use your elections. It's in two years, it's a good time to start organizing have at it uh and please stop asking us to get the lieutenant governor to do stuff because that's not how it works thanks
2: i just want to quickly chime in on something melanie said and and this is something that eva and i discuss daily um similar to people imploring the the uh, lg to step in and do something people think that the courts are going to step in and and do something and you know the the courts are an important check on government power and important accountability mechanism but and I'm going to make a really broad sweeping legal statement here. It is very difficult whether you're, you're talking about, Negligence law, or um, using an administrative law, challenging the reasonableness of government's decisions—it's very difficult to challenge their high-level policy decisions. And so, I think there's a, a real desire to have the courts step in. But I think if it was the other way around, and you liked the government's policies, you would be horrified if the LG was calling an election, the courts were overturning policy, and and, and so I agree with Melanie that um, you know, unfortunately, uh, it. The election, which which isn't for a while, is the best way of, of of imposing accountability on the government for these kinds of high level policy decisions.
5: So, I, I hope you don't mind if I chime in here. Um, I mean, some of some of this conversation is oddly actually reminiscent of British Columbia in 2016, 2017, in the last days of the BC Liberals, which were, which are not Liberals, <laughs> they're Conservatives. Um, and, and they were going through a number of scandals, nowhere near as big as this one. But there was the um, big uh, scandal at BC Health um, where uh, actually one of the students that we had at, in our program at UVic Uh, committed suicide as a result of a handling of the information disclosure complaint Um, and that led to a a lot of individuals calling for these same things that this government needs to be held accountable the lieutenant governor should step in Um, there's got to be legal ramifications well we dealt with them quite adeptly in 2017 election although it took like four or five months to figure that election out but (laughs) We do, we, we, the NDP did win um, and uh, formed a coalition government that actually worked extremely well. That was a really good government. Um, and then the NDP went back into the polls in just this fall. No, last fall. <laughs> I'm sorry. I have no concept of time anymore. So last fall, um, and then they, they won a majority uh, rather than a minority that had to be backed up with the Greens um so yeah i I mean i think with any any issue there's always armchair political scientists armchair lawyers armchair economists saying how how it should work um and it's never as simple and i think mel what you said there is correct it when when it's when you are supporting that government these are really concerning steps um to to be taken in in a democracy and just to go back to um, what we were talking about in terms of the, the, the public health, the chief medical officer of health, I have family in Nova Scotia. <laughs> I'm very jealous of my family in Nova Scotia. And I love watching Dr. Strang give his updates. And that is the model of a chief medical officer that was envisioned, him portraying the role that he is, is what was envisioned after the SARS outbreak. I lived in Toronto. Um, during the SARS outbreak. So uh, I, to me, it was actually a real pandemic as opposed to, I know not every place experienced that. Um, but yeah, he's forceful and um, he's clearly like, it's clear that the government is listening to him and not vice versa. And that is a really important role. What is more important I think for me as an economist for that example is watching the chief medical officer take public health decisions and then the economists come in and say how do we make sure we're supporting the economy and people through it not putting the economy first but that's what feels like this government is doing right it's 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 some economists going oh you know we can't afford to 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 shut down our economy and things like this we absolutely can't um and and anybody saying we can't i think is just um uh, just not not in on you know modern economic analysis,
4: uh, and Lindsay, oh, they're ide- they're ideologically opposed to the. They are impo-
5: ideologically opposed to any. It, it is. It, I mean, this government throws around the word ideology, I don't know why I don't, because <laughs> that's, that's exactly what it is. And I, and, I, and that is absolutely what is missing here. And even myself, like as an economist, I'm watching these public health decisions. I have no confidence in them as being public health decisions and not economic decisions. They look like economic decisions to me. And that makes me very, very concerned because all predictions at this point in time are calling for a second pandemic sometime in the next decade. And we've got to get this, we've got to do this better. We should have done it better after SARS. We haven't, and we need to do it better now because I mean, this, this government is going to go down as one of the worst handlers of of the pandemic and looks way too closely at what Boris Johnson is doing in terms of handling the pandemic than otherwise.
0: As an as an economist, Lindsay, and you're watching these public health decisions that, fe- that appear, frankly, I'm sure, are very flavored with that economy first versus public health first, are they working? I sure know I don't go anywhere and I have zero interest oh, in contributing in any way, shape or form beyond my tiny little bubble of a household in terms of economic growth and development in this province right now. I can't... I, I I struggle to understand the perceived or real value in the health policies that have happened as they relate to economics.
5: Well, I, you know, when you ask me a question like that, what ends up happening is I think about the stratification that has been reinforced in our society as a result of what is going on in this province as a result of this pandemic. I mean, I, I think I've gotten to a point where I'm agrophobic. Agor- like, I am nervous of leaving the house. I don't trust the people. I don't trust where I work. I don't trust anybody in this province to have my, my family's health as a priority here. Um, and so I take it upon myself to give us that, that protection through the decisions, but I have the ability to make those decisions. The other segments of society are doing, um, They don't have the ability to make these same choices. I was just talking to um, Dr. Chris McCabe um, about this exact aspect of how can we think about um, how, how do we think about making sure that people have the supports to make the right decision for them to make the right health choice when there are economic implications to it. We don't have any programs provincially or federally, that allow people to to make a, a real choice in valuing their health and making sure that they are supported through, through the pandemic, income-wise and through public services to make sure that they're supported. So they've got to go out there and risk themselves and they are not properly compensated in the labor market for that risk choice that they, they, they are taking on. And in fact, what we keep hearing going on is a lot of businesses saying that there are these labor shortages because of the benefits that are in place. That's not why there's labor shortages. Um, And with that, that narrative has got to stop. It tells me that there is a significant portion of the business community that didn't learn anything from this and how you treat human beings when there is a health crisis going on.
4: So So can I, I oh, no, go ahead.
3: Sorry, just very quickly, just to pick up on that point. I I think it's important to relate um, what uh, Dr. Ted said to the reason why we actually have this structure of uh, public health management of pandemics in the law. So I, I studied the history of the legal history of uh, pandemics, like smallpox uh, pandemics back then. And, and it was from all of that, that we now have this structure where you have someone who's a health professional in charge and making decisions when you have disease in the community. And the reason for that is an understanding that once there's disease in the community, nothing is right. And nothing can ever be right until that disease is under control. And I think that has been the problems that this government has failed to embrace this idea that until COVID is under control, we really can't have an economy, we can't have anything working right. And that's been so beautifully expressed here. And it's important because we're going to do this start, stop, start, stop thing uh, and lose so much ground, so much time when the role that is, as, as it is contemplated means that we ha- if we put things in, in, in the hands of science and the hands of, uh, of the chief medical officer of health, there's a chance that we can actually stamp out the disease quickly enough so we can go back to having an economy and a life. Uh, and you just can't have disease in the community and expect to have life as usual. That's the philosophy behind the law. And that's what we need to maintain. Because without that, we're going to be for in this, you know, for the long haul when it should really be stamped out as quickly as possible. Sorry, Melanie, I didn't want to. Uh...
4: No, I'm actually glad that you got to go first because this should raise questions in people's minds. So given that, given that we've got that historical legal foundation for why we're doing it this way, given that we can point to. Uh, how the economy is not going to work if we don't actually get this under control, and that it is clear when you're looking at this in a whole number of other ways, raises the obvious question of, so why aren't they doing it? Like, it's, it, if people are screaming, but why? Like, this doesn't make sense, make it make sense, but why? This is where I think is important. I'm a political scientist. I can't help but think about power and how people think about power. And it's not lost to me that as um, uh, Dr. Teds was speaking, the people that you're identifying are people who are often either fully disempowered, explicitly marginalized for a number of reasons. Sometimes it's related to the kind of work that they're doing. Often it can be re- related to things like systemic racism, systemic sexism. Um, really regressive ideas about like who is appropriate to be doing what work and what's appropriate to be privileged and all of this stuff that we would like to think that we get out of actually making good public policy or that people would actually be giving like proper consideration to because they're supposed to govern everyone. And I keep coming back to this idea that the reason why we see this stuff is because there are some interests that are privileged um, with respect to being able to get time, uh, influence, and even just basic consideration when it comes to managing these particular policies uh, and the pandemic. And I can't escape the conclusion, or at least asking very forcefully the question, like, is everybody else just being so systemically discounted because the government can't be arsed to care about them to the point that they are misusing the public health system that's in place that's designed to mitigate exactly this problem? Um, I think if other people are well-placed to be able to ask the people who are making those decisions, why are you not taking more of this stuff into account? Why are you not seeing that public health and like the economy, like that these things go together? Like, ask them why. I'd be really curious to hear what their answers were, because I suspect that they are nothing but like pretty superficial ideology without much substance behind them, without an understanding of the legal history of these positions behind them, without an understanding of the economics behind them, and without an understanding of like how they're playing into gross power hierarchies behind them as well. You can tell that I'm like really tired and salty about this. And I also just find it I, so frustrating. Like it's so...
5: the For, uh, for again... Uh, I do have a political science degree. I, so just so people don't don't think I'm just an economist. Uh, the economists make fun of me of that, but the political scientists make fun for my for my economics degree. And um, I th- I think you know, to me, what I see and I saw obvious. I mean, I'm new here to Alberta, and I'm, but I feel like I've really gotten my feet in the last two years. Um, here is that the there there. The, ideology is being driven by a um, narrow understanding of what economics is we can all agree that they are pro-business and that they uh, purport to be um capitalists but underlying this my discipline economics right i mean there are people like this government and some of the economists that are forming them who say that economists are only concerned with efficiency and that's the only objective and as soon as you're only concerned with efficiency, you're going to forget about you know people and these um, these issues of power and you know that kooky intersectionality that helps you understand things. Really, economics is, in fact, if 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 when when you actually read the origins of economics, and because I'm a political scientist, I have read <laughs> the origins of the, 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 the early thinkers. Our primary objective is, in fact, social justice. It's well-being, like that is our primary goal that we're trying to achieve, is economic is, is, is well-being. And how do we go about achieving that? Well, then there's this balance of, usually the way it's phrased in economics, it's a trade-off between equity and efficiency. As soon as we decide that there's a trade-off between equity and efficiency, we allow people to die under public policy. And that has got to stop. We've got to stop letting economists, old school economists, drive this discourse that all that matters is economic efficiency. Economic efficiency means nothing if we're not actually achieving the the, the meta principle of equity and and wellness and well-being and the good life. I'm salty too.
4: <laughs> I think that's why people like us, right? <laughs> I refuse to believe
5: otherwise.
0: I feel like we are all very much in that place in this time and space where you question why folks are not salty versus when they actually are. Um, I think anyone who has been listening or paying attention or plain and simple has any human feelings um, is at that point where it is... You, spades need to be called spades. Um, we talked a little bit about sort of you know how this next two years could be used for rallying people, for beginning to build what that next provincial election could look like. Um, we touched briefly on what a no vote on the equalization referendum could look like this upcoming weekend and what type of message that could send. Um, but as Monday comes, um, I would be remiss not to ask, and folks at home would like me to ask, um, what types of questions people should be asking their counselors to be, their mayors to be, their county reeves to be, and their school board trustees to be this final weekend before we go into our municipal and county elections? Um, I realize that, you know, we've watched that they don't hold the same amount of Power as the provincial government does in terms of large scale influence in healthcare, but we have watched major centers enact mask mandates way before um, the province chose to. We have seen business supports come out of those city and town councils. And so, for folks who are at home watching this, um, what are some of those key points that they can really be having conversations with? Um, at their kitchen tables this weekend, and with their mayoral and councillor candidates. So
4: a key thing to remember is that most municipal power flows from the provincial government. So municipalities are empowered to do things because the provincial government, like basically gives them the power to do that um, so in that case I so this is I I'm going to caveat with this with that municipal elections are hard because they're low information context there's a lot of things that are going on if you're in Calgary and you've got like two-thirds of council has open seats this is like unprecedented and also just so noisy and when you've got all these other things going on it's It's much more difficult to sort through the noise in this context than it is in, say, a provincial or federal election where it's organized by parties. There's lots of things that kind of help simplify stuff um, and things along those lines. But for people who are prepared to, like, go to the hard question, the hard question I would have that I think applies everywhere, um, whether or not somebody is urban or rural or like in like a small, uh, smaller urban center or something like that is to ask about the kind of like, either you can put it, frame it in terms of finances, you can frame it in terms of power, but to ask about the kind of relationship that their representatives municipally would like to have with the province. Because uh, I think that we're probably going to encounter this a period in the future, in the near future, that's going to be like significant revisionist history where people are going to wanna say, well, the problem was with those like uppity municipalities pushing back too hard on the province and things along those lines. When really it's been like either municipalities scrambling to try to get like reasonable public health policy in place with respect to masks or it's like rural municipalities scrambling because the province has like without consultation changed things like ambulance um, dispatch and like um, financing uh, with respect to various sorts of things that have literally left left those um, municipalities scrambling and desperate to figure out what's going on it The current approach from the province is one that is hostile and belligerent, and it's like not one that's based on a lot of consultation. And so ask people the kind of consultation and like relationship that they would expect from the province and how they would expect that in terms of like the municipality and how they would try to foster that with respect to the municipality. I can tell you without naming names that there are some mayoral candidates in Calgary um, where they wouldn't really foster a relationship. They would just do what they were told. Right. And so you would be able to find that out um, by having that kind of conversation with them, Um, because and the reason why I think that particular question is important is because if they've got municipalities that are like willing to do it or like set up in such a way, the province can literally flow down and force municipalities to do stuff um, that they may or may not want to do. Uh, municipalities can, in contrast, push back up and, and, you know, force things to be a more mature dialogue force things to be more like adult with respect to public policy, um, take initiative on their own, like raise an alternative point of view um, that is like as representative and as important. I'm like, I could go on and on about this, but like, that's the hard one. Um, the easy one for things like school board would be like, tell me what you think about the new curriculum. Do you think that process, how good do you think that process was on the new curriculum? And it can be like, if they say, yeah, I think it's great, that's somebody who's probably not going to be a good representative for you.
2: Um, So building on on what what Melanie said, I think this is a a really important municipal election. Uh, I think that this is a government that likes other people to fill its gaps when it comes to COVID policy. This is a government that would rather have the best summer ever not be around in August, and then let municipalities, school boards, uh, private businesses, everybody else fill fill those gaps, including municipalities. and Mark my words. This is a government that will get rid of the vaccine exemption program and other public health measures prematurely. This is a government that will be slow to act in the God forbid fifth wave, sixth wave, and so you want a municipality that is willing to fill that gap because you will need them to. You may need them to to, to have masks. You may need them to to, to deal with school safety issues and. And so I think that uh, municipalities, um, you know, do have a, a significant amount of, of power in terms of, of what they can do and how they can regulate places and spaces. School boards have jurisdiction with respect to various uh, types of school safety, and you need those people to keep you and your family safe when this province backs off.
3: So, uh, as everyone knows, I. I tend sometimes not to uh, have the finesse that my colleagues have employed in instead <laughs> in, in this. Instead, in what what really should be obvious to anyone who is going to participate in municipal elections at this point, I agree completely with everything that's been said. But I, I'll be, um, I, I'll just uh, sort of draw what I feel is the bottom line here. By now, you should know what candidates are being put forward by the UCP. I think those candidates are not good for our municipalities. Mm-hmm. This is the level of government that is closest to us. And as Dr. Ted said, you know, we, we're we looking at people, this government has enacted policies that don't favor the people. And as, as the people, as people who want our lives to be good and what's optimal for our lives, we don't want UCP candidates at the municipal level as well. Uh, because what you're gonna have is these policies flowing through to the level of government that most impacts our lives. Uh, and if they flow through, we're going to see the kinds of mistakes that the UCP government has made coming to the municipalities. So please do not vote for candidates that are being backed by the UCP. You know them now, you know, I, I could, I'm going to tweet them after this. <laughs> so don't vote for them. I don't want to say it on this broadcast. So that's not to appear partisan, but do not vote for UCP candidates. There'll be a tweet after this listing all of them. In Calgary too, you know who they are. Don't vote for them.
5: So I I'll um, quote our outgoing Mayor Nenci. If the federal government disappeared tomorrow, it would probably take Canadians a few weeks to notice, perhaps a few hours or even days in the case of the provincial government. If your municipal government disappeared, you'd have no roads, no transit, no parks, no police, no firefighters, no clean water, no sewage treatment, nothing you'd notice pretty quickly. We, municipalities provide the services that keep people healthy and safe and happy every hour of the day of their life. Municipal elections are more important than any other election um, that we can have. And I just, I'll I'll say exactly what everybody else has said but in a slightly different way, stop voting for people who don't believe in government. Like what? (laughs) understand right these people don't believe in government and then they're gonna say they're gonna go into government and they're gonna treat it like a business government is not a business Um, for a variety of different reasons you need to have a base level of understanding of of why government is important and what I always find interesting in in municipal elections probably because I do have an expertise in municipal public finance of the number of people running for um, municipal government who don't even know what the authorities of a municipal government are, and they're promising things. I think Ibaka's right. Take a look at their platforms. They're promising things that they cannot deliver on, and people need to be much more careful about um, the spin. A lot of these councillors are just telling people what they want to hear. People, of course, don't want to pay taxes. People, of course, want great public services for no taxes. That is not... You can't do with that. (laughs) They're just completely orthogonal to each other, so we, we need to make sure that we understand that uh, municipal government, especially one the size of Calgary, um, as as well as Edmonton, or wherever you are, whatever size of government you are, it it does take uh, revenues to run that. And this this narrative that municipal public that uh, municipal governments you know are wasteful in their spending, th- there's not a lot of um, meat, laughter, fat in a municipal government's budget after it pays for the two biggest essential services, which is firefighters and police. So yeah, just take some time. Think about it. Make sure you vote for a good school trustee too. I beg of you um, as a parent to an eight-year-old and get out and vote.
4: So can I also add quickly, we need to remember, I love this idea that like government is not a business. this idea that government is like a household budget that you can approach government financing like you can balancing your own personal finance needs to die like a terrible death and a quick one at that time. <laughs> like this is this is not how this stuff works like what like I can like the, the the truisms that I use to like deal with my own personal finances would be useless with respect to like government financing so anybody who wants to say, It's just analogous to like your home. Like you don't like spend more than, like, no. This this, What they're wanting to do is they want to mislead you into thinking that it's much more simple than what it actually is. Uh, Especially in a place like Calgary, like the the conversations that we're going to have to have about public finance are serious and they are gnarly and they are going to be hard. And like, it's going to be, if we're lucky to satisfy, like just get something that we're just like okay with as opposed to something that, anyway, I could go on. But like, it's not like a business It's not like your personal finances it is a different thing this needs to be understood
0: thank you all so very much for today i knew that i was excited about this conversation and i am still very excited about this conversation and am very sad that we are going to say goodbye Um, thank you all so much for your time thank you everyone at home for joining us we'll be back on tuesday with a panel of experts exploring the great barrington declaration should should be another interesting one. Oh yeah we're, we're gonna we're we're gonna talk about what kind of policy is actually happening possibly up above us in this province um but before then um voting for municipalities counties school boards will take place throughout alberta as we have mentioned two provincial referendum questions will be on that ballot as well please take time on monday to be heard um cast your ballot Your voice really does matter. And I know I have found some really great questions in this hour-long conversation today that I am going to do some digging on for answers this weekend for myself before I go to the polls on Monday. Until next time, stay safe, Alberta. As always, remember, COVID-19 is airborne, wear the best mask you have access to, and vaccines really do save lives.